0: We will hear argument this morning in case 2107, Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid.
1: Hey everyone, this is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this week's episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about Cedar Point Nursery v. Hasid. The case, which was decided this past June, centers on a California regulation that allows union organizers to enter farms for a few hours each day during certain parts of the year to talk to farm workers. Cedar Point Nursery sued, saying that the law represented a taking, as in the government taking away the farm's property. The only question before the court is whether that regulation is a per se taking. And the answer is no. But the court ruled in favor of the property owners, paving the way for future cases that could have sweeping ramifications for safety regulations and civil rights. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have Left our nation parched and weak like a record-breaking heat wave. (laughs) I am Peter. I'm here with Michael. Hey, everybody. And Rhiannon. Hello. Pretty brutal heat wave out there this week. Uh, The good news is that it'll actually get worse every single year for the rest of our lives. (laughs) That's right. So this is the best it's going to get, which in and of itself.
2: Enjoy it. Yeah. 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 Right.
1: Glass half full kind of guy, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. we'll never see temperatures yeah. this cold again.
2: Yeah. <laughs> hot girl right. summer. We're supposed to be vibing.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, hot girl summer. Cut to a girl just passed out yeah. of dehydration on the sidewalk.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> I get sunstroke. <laughs> <laughs> you need stroke girl summer. <laughs>
1: Today's case is Cedar Point Nursery v. Hasid. The best part about doing a podcast about shitty Supreme Court decisions is that new material, not too hard to come by. Keeps rolling in. (laughs) That's right. Uh, This one just dropped a couple of uh, weeks ago, and it's about union busting. Um, Oh, I'm sorry, uh, private property rights.
2: (laughs) Yeah, come correct. That's
1: right. The Constitution has a clause in the Fifth Amendment called the Takings Clause, and it says that the government cannot just take your shit. (laughs) Specifically, it says that that. Private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. Right. right. So the government cannot seize your property without compensating you for it. Now, there is a law in California dating back to the famous labor organizing efforts of Cesar Chavez that allows union organizers to occasionally go onto private farmland for the purpose of organizing farm workers. Yeah. The corporations that run those farms don't care for that. And so they said, hey, this violates the takings clause. The government is forcing me to allow these union organizers onto my farmland. And that is sort of in an abstract way, like the government taking my property. So that's not allowed under the Constitution. Hmm. (laughs) And in a six to three decision authored by Chief Justice John Roberts, the court agrees with the farming companies. They say that a law that requires the companies to allow union organizers onto their land is the constitutional equivalent of the government seizing the land. Now, this is a decision deeply rooted in crackpot libertarian conceptions of property. Absolutely. Right? Yes. Where any interference with a landowner's property is excessive encroachment by the government and and that is at the core of this case not just the sort of like obvious anti-union sentiment but the age-old protection of the landowning classes from everyone else so re believe you have a little bit of color here.
2: Yeah, let's dive into the crackpot shit, shall we? So yeah, the 1975 Agricultural Labor Relations Act in California, that's the law that Peter was just referencing. The specific provisions of the act, which come to be at issue in this case, are that the law allowed union members, as long as they give prior notice to California's Agricultural Labor Relations Board, it allows those union members to come on to agricultural properties up to three times a day, one hour at a time, and up to 120 days during a year. Now, they're allowed to do that so that they can perform unionization activities, right? Encourage people to join these collective bargaining associations, flyer among laborers, and that kind of thing. So this case comes out of efforts by agricultural union organizers who were encouraging laborers at a strawberry nursery and a fruit packing operation to join the union. Right. And this happened in 2015. Now. The nursery and the fruit packing company, those owners decide to turn around and sue, saying that the law in California allowing those union organizers to come onto their land, again, maximum three hours a day, just 120 days a year to encourage people to join a union, that that was taking their land Mm -hmm. without compensation. So here we are.
1: So this case requires a little bit of academic background. The takings clause of the Constitution, again, says that private property shall not, quote, be taken for public use without just compensation. What exactly that means has been the subject of much debate over the years among academic morons. (laughs) Some cases are obvious. Uh, If the government seizes your land to build a public park, the takings clause covers that situation, Mm -hmm. right? That is what's called a per-se taking. But there's another type called a regulatory taking, which is when the government interferes with your property use in a more limited way. So, you know, if the government passes a zoning restriction that limits how you can use your property, what kind of building you can build on your land.
0: That might be a regulatory taking. Right. The one thing that I really like about the regulatory takings is that any interference with the use of your land is not a regulatory taking. The official test of the Supreme Court is when the regulation goes, quote unquote, too far. That's the test. (laughs) Cited all the time. That is literally the test. This is our the greatest legal minds of a generation at work.
2: Thank God for judges.
0: It's pure judgment call. Which, like, you know, maybe that's what judges are supposed to do, but just to see them write a rule that's like, well, whatever you think is just a little too much.
1: If it's bad, it's unconstitutional. If it's Uh,
2: good, it's constitutional. Right. And that's the literal legal rule.
1: So lots of more libertarian minded conservatives have a theory that this clause should be read to apply to almost any government interference with your property, no matter how abstract that interference is. So here you have these big farming companies saying, hey, you passed a law that allows union organizers to come onto my land. That's the government forcing me to let people onto my land, even though I don't want to. So that's the equivalent of taking my land for public use. And the government isn't paying me any compensation for that taking, which is required by the Fifth Amendment. So this is unconstitutional. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Bada bing, bada boom, you know? and. Now, what's interesting is I just outlined the the two types of takings. They are claiming that this is a per se taking, which, as I mentioned above, is the more severe type of taking, not like the regulatory taking that, that Michael was mentioning, where, you know, you're dealing with zoning restrictions or whatever. The standard for this, a per se taking, is that the government's action must force the landowners to suffer, quote, a permanent physical occupation of their land, or be deprived of, quote, all economically beneficial or productive use all. of All.
2: Land.
1: All. 100%. All. In other words, for it to be a per se taking, the government needs to either seize a property or render it completely useless. Yeah. And that is what Cedar Point Nursery, the farming company, is arguing here. They are arguing that allowing a union to access their land For three hours a day, 120 days a year to organize workers is the equivalent of having the property
0: seized or made completely valueless. Yeah, like literally there's no justifying it beyond just saying it is and then repeating it is in very various different Mm -hmm. ways. Being like, oh, property is a bundle of rights and the right to exclude is an important one. And this modifies your right to exclude. So it's a per se taking. But there's no effort to really show how this actually is an appropriation of land, how this is taking someone's property. It's hard to square. The opinion just just states it.
1: Yeah, there's some weird shit in the conservative academic psyche about like dominion over your property where like it must be total. Like your control over your property Mm -hmm. must be total or else they're stepping on your snake. Right. They're treading all over you. Mm -hmm. And it's like fucking... Uh, weird Ron Paul shit. Yes. Right? And, yes. and it's being yeah. it's being like fully adopted here. I think what like really gives the lie to this analysis by Roberts is that if you use his analysis, the entire takings framework falls apart. Again, they, like, there are supposed to be two kinds of takings. Regulatory takings, where the government imposes a regulation that impedes a person's ability to use their property in some minor way. And then per se takings where the government Physically seizes or appropriates the, the property entirely. So, if this temporary intrusion by union organizers is a per se taking, then what's a regulatory taking? Like, how? Right. What's a more right. minor right. intrusion onto the land than this? I, I think what Roberts is really doing is saying that these two categories don't really exist anymore. Yeah. According to Roberts, almost any law that interferes with an owner's property rights, no matter how minor, is going to automatically infringe upon their constitutional rights.
2: Totally. And I think, you know, something that's important that is relevant is a little bit more of this history, this background of how this California regulation was passed in the first place. Before this California law allowing, you know, union organizers on to agriculture companies land before it was passed, there was a decade more, more than 10 years of labor strife, literal yeah. violent struggle. Right. Yeah. There was the Delano grape strike, the Salad bowl strike. People are getting arrested by the police for striking. People are being met by anti-unionist rioters and anti-unionist laborers who are straight up assaulting them, trying to make them go to work, trying to force people to cross the picket lines. And so, yeah, this legislation It's about the fundamental right to organize kind of on a political or a philosophical level. But on a practical level, like there is a public benefit of this law. And that is keeping the peace and getting laborers access to political power that they had been violently struggling for for years beforehand. Yeah.
1: There's something so stark about this law that is like born in workers' blood and then struck down by some fucking nerd who went to harvard yeah Yeah. (laughs) right yeah there's a sort of detachment in anti-labor jurisprudence from the struggle from which those labor laws were born you see it here and you see it in janice and in epic systems it's just all over these
2: cases Totally.
0: Yeah. And there's something else I wanted I wanted to note that Roberts does implicitly that I think is important, which is he says, look, this isn't as sweeping and as bad as the dissent thinks, because look, there are all these sort of exceptions to this rule. Right. And he lists them. And one of them is that the government may require property owners to cede a right of access as a condition of receiving certain benefits. Without causing a taking, that's what he says. And so there's there's something implicit in this, which is that like these labor laws have no benefits to the employers or to the public at large. uh, To be frank, which I think the history of this law it shows that that's bullshit, right? Like these owners don't want riots, they don't want years long strikes. Labor peace is a real benefit. It's just the way they want labor peace. Is to just have the state punish anyone who has the temerity to, you know, act out, right? To to speak back, right? It's a very sneaky and shitty way of construing labor laws as solely interfering with and impinging on employers without having any benefits inure to them, which is just wrong.
1: Right. Yeah, and it construes public benefit as being separate from the workers themselves. Right. As if uh, as if a benefit to the workers is not a benefit to the public at all. Right.
2: Right. That's exactly right. Right. As if protecting labor's interests and protecting workers rights is not of a public benefit or public use.
1: John Roberts, you are doing what is called othering. And we do not
2: appreciate (laughs) it.
0: (laughs) So I do want to switch gears for a sec. Peter mentioned conservative academic psyches. And And so this sort of crank shit has been bouncing around in conservative circles uh, for a while. Sort of the headliner in this is Richard Epstein, who is a crank in all sorts of ways, uh, maybe most infamously claiming that there would only be 500 deaths due to COVID in in a memo that circulated. In the Trump White House, and was apparently very mm-hmm. influential in their initial response.
1: Yeah. And by the way, I've been pitching this recently. Any media outlet that wants it, I will pitch an article about Richard Epstein titled "The Worst Epstein." Wow! And it'll just be <laughs> sort of a bio.
2: Bold.
0: <laughs> yeah. So he's had this this very like libertarian idea about the takings clause that has a, an extremely expansive view of it. That's like far out of step with how it was used in the early days of the Republic or any days of (laughs) of the Republic for that matter. It would be sort of a sea change to take it to these extremes where just about any government use of land or any government interference with land at all as a takings that requires compensation you know which makes sense because as a libertarian he is opposed to the administrative state he's opposed to regulatory state and this has been sort of working its way through conservative academia for a long right. time and i don't think anybody ever saw it as a real threat maybe there was a period in the early 2000s when you know people were concerned about it but the fact that it seems to be resurfacing now that this feels like maybe the thin edge of the wedge here, mm-hmm. right? That like Cedar Point is maybe just the start of this new expansive view of the takings clause that could eventually be like a serious assault on the administrative state uh, is it's pretty scary.
2: Right, right. It's so dangerous in the way that conservatives want small government to work, right? Yeah. To say that That union organizers coming onto land for three hours a day is the government totally seizing a property, right, to render it economically useless for the owners. I I worry about how this language will be used in the future to limit any, uh, you know, you can think of a whole host of things that state legislatures would do that would then be struck down.
0: I'll, I'll tell you how this language is going to be used in the future when the meter reader comes, I'm going to tell them they cannot invade my land. (laughs) 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 That that the right to exclude is fundamental to my ownership in the land. Right. And until I am justly compensated, they may not invade. (laughs) (laughs) This could have pretty broad implications going forward. It, It hasn't gotten that sort of play at this point in the press and amongst liberal academia, but I don't really trust the conservative justices or conservative academics or the federal society or any of them to uh, stop here, right? Yeah. To say, I'm good, right? Like, like this just seems like an invitation for the next case that's going to yeah. be even more extreme, that's going to cite to this case.
1: Yeah, they really revel in the breadth of these constitutional amendments when it's beneficial to yeah. them, right? That's Absolutely. right. They will yammer on about judicial, like liberal judicial activism when it comes to like the 14th Amendment. And then they see something like the Fifth Amendment or the Second Amendment. And they get that shit as broad as possible. Right. In their mind. Oh, yeah. And that's their sort of starting point. And the takings clause. They're like, oh, yeah, if the government tells you to do, any, to do anything, that's a taking. Right. You start with that position and you work your way toward towards something that looks like a little more palatable. Exactly the shit that they complain about. Exactly the shit that they complain about.
2: Right. And they do it knowingly, right? Like this is sort of explicitly hypocritical. Like this is the uh, John Roberts knows that this decision is not constitutionally sound. Right. And well reasoned. John Roberts knows that this is in flying in the face of precedent. But this is completely in line with a conservative court's political agenda to be the arbiter of deregulation, right? Mm -hmm. He knows that this is a precedent that can stand for so much more deregulation. And that's kind of the point. They don't give a fuck.
0: Yeah, I mean, even in the opinion, they sort of like concede that this isn't how takings were originally conceived of, right? right? Like they talk about the history of takings and it's like, yeah, back in the early 1900s and the 1800s, it was like, when the government like condemns a property, right. right? When the government takes possession of a property formally without acquiring title to it, when the government floods a property and makes it useless, right? Like things that are not at all like this. And the way they get around that is by saying, but actually this is like that.
2: <laughs> and, right. right. What if we just said it is those things? Right. That's it. That is the reasoning.
0: <laughs> this is our second straight
1: case episode, because we did we just did Fulton. Where John Roberts does the same thing where he does the cadence of logic. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's like he's almost doing syllogistic reasoning, except it doesn't make sense. Where he's just like, (laughs) well, uh, takings involve a physical invasion of the land. This is a physical invasion of the land. Therefore, it is a taking. All right. Moving on. You're like, wait, I think there's actually a lot of incredibly incorrect assumptions built into that. Exactly. That I would love to explore. Uh, but you don't get to. No. Right,
2: right. In this case, John Roberts is asked to basically compare apples and oranges. And he comes out saying, no, apples and oranges are the same thing.
1: Right, right. Uh, an apple is a fruit and orange is a fruit. Therefore, they are the same thing.
2: That's right. This feels like a good spot. We should take a break. OK, we are back.
1: This is like a disconcertingly dangerous precedent. You know, you have the administrative state side of this, which I think is a a concern that will become real very quickly. Mm-hmm. You also have the civil rights side of this. You know, what the court says mm. is that the company had a quote right to exclude people from its property. And by requiring them to allow union organizers on the property, they were being deprived of that right to exclude. And if you take that logic All of a sudden, a lot of progressive laws, civil rights laws look potentially unconstitutional, right? That's right. Anti-discrimination laws deprive employers of their right to exclude workers on discriminatory grounds. Public accommodations laws deprive business owners of their right to exclude people of different races or genders or sexual orientations, legally disabled people, et cetera, from their uh, places of business. Are those now constitutionally questionable? The good news is that the court expressly says, well, public accommodations laws are different because unlike the farm, those are businesses open to the public, which is reassuring that they're distinguishing it. But like, is that actually true? Are they actually substantively different? Like, If the constitutional issue is triggered by a company's right to exclude people from its property being interfered with, why wouldn't it apply to that context just as directly? Right? right? Right. It feels like the court is trying to provide bullshit reassurances to give the initial impression that this ruling is not as sweeping as it seems like it logically should be. My this holding is not a slippery slope that will devastate civil rights t-shirt is resulting in a lot of questions already <laughs> answered by my shirt. <laughs> hey. yeah. yeah, the the point is that many civil rights laws frequently limit the property rights of some person or corporation. When you read the Takings Clause broadly enough, it calls almost any of those laws into question. And that's what's so disconcerting about this.
2: Yeah, that's right. And and not only sort of the far-reaching impact of this case and what it means as like precedent in the future for what legal developments like come out of it, but turning back to just union organizers and unions in California, labor rights of farm workers right now, this case has a massive impact. Maybe the first thing that comes to mind is that unions have way less of an ability now to help. California's agricultural workers, right? Agricultural workers, people who work on farms, day laborers, often are paid the lowest wages in the country, often work jobs that are listed and reported as the most dangerous for on-the-job injuries, for on-the-job death, and they work in extremely harsh conditions, right? You're talking about California summers, high temperatures, not a lot of room for taking breaks to take care of your body, you know, on and on and on and on. Not to mention that these workers are incredibly important not to just the American economy, but to our society. Right. Without California's agricultural workers alone, just take that one state. Right. Without California's farm workers, this country doesn't have food. Right. They are the people who put food on the table for all of us in restaurants, in our grocery stores. And Mm -hmm. so this case obviously limits organizers' ability to reach those workers to make sure that they are kept safe, to make sure that they can organize and use their collective power to ensure their rights are protected in those kinds of conditions. So then you might say, okay, well, unions can't go onto the farms, onto the land, but they could reach these workers in another way, right? Why don't they send out an email or why don't they meet at the community center or what have you? Well, I mean, the particular conditions that these workers work in, many are migrant laborers and many are laborers who move with the seasons. Mm-hmm. So they move to different properties, right. they work for different employers, they work on different farms and move around the state often. And so not being able to reach them at their workplace means that by and large, thousands of these laborers are now inaccessible to organizers. They can't reach them.
1: Right. Union access to the workplace is essential for organizing I mean, because there's no other place where you can ensure that all the workers are actually going to be that's there. right anything else is just going to be right. so imprecise right you're just doing your best to get as many of them as possible right i mean union organizers access to the workplace has been a battleground not just in california but across the country because it's so important right. to the union mission to actually be able to target workplaces physically because that's the only place obviously where you know the workers are going to be that's right. when your goal is to right. you know rally a large percentage of workers to the cause of joining your union you need access and so it's essential to the function of unions and companies are always pressing back on union access to their workplaces trying to keep them out on the street away from the parking lots whatever it might be right. in different contexts and that's why this law is so important because, especially in this context, like Re mentioned, with uh, so many migrant workers, access is necessary for any real organizing to take place.
0: Absolutely. And I do want to return to sort of the illogic of this decision. Something that I had been thinking about with this is in terms of value. A lot of the examples that are used here are. A law that says cable companies need to have access to buildings, roofs, in order to put cable boxes up there. Right, right. right. And in addition to being a permanent physical intrusion, unlike these temporary rights of access, that's also just literally taking away your access to part of your property, right? right. There's a physical space that's no longer yours that has value that, that maybe you could have sold, right? Sure. You could have sold someone a roof deck there, and instead it's going to a cable company, right? Right. right. Um, similarly with like an easement, You know, if you have a beachfront property and the government has an easement granting access, you know, to the public to get through your house, not through your house, but through (sighs) your yard to get Mm -hmm. to the beach. Right. Like that's that's land that you could have sold or that you could have used that now you can't. And there's a certain value loss. Right. And you can sort of quantitatively say my land is worth X or was worth X, but now it's worth Y it's worth something less because I have less use of it or I have less of it, period. Right. I can't convey this portion of it to somebody else in exchange for money. It's worth less. That's not what's happening here. Right. Like the land isn't worth less. If unions are allowed to organize on it, it's not less tillable land. The soil isn't less fertile, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's not, there's not less space It just means that they can't pay their workers as shitty. Right, right. Right.
2: That's the problem that actually John Roberts is is trying to address. Right. Right. It's not that landowners lose the value of their property or their property depreciates because union organizers for an hour, three times a day are there talking to their employees. Right. It's that their employees are learning about unions. Right. I mean,
1: Roberts expressly like seems to be referring to like disruption of the workers. Right. Right. They don't have a property interest under the Constitution in like their workers productivity. If a worker stops working for an hour, then they don't get paid for an hour. Right. That's 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 simple enough. That's wage an hour fucking law. That's not a constitutional issue. Right. And what he seems to be like implying, or at least the way in which he seems to be muddying the water is like creating this gray area where the employer almost has a property interest in their workers productivity.
0: And that is slave owning shit. Right. That is fucked up. That's right. Yeah.
2: That's like right. literally. Yeah. yeah,
0: that's literally slave owning logic. Right. And this law in particular specifically sort of circumscribes when and where labor organizers could be and what they could do. And and so That's right. The remedy, if the law is not being followed by labor organizers, if they're not showing up with adequate notice, if they're not coming in the prescribed times, if they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, you know, which includes no work disruptions, right? Like, there are other remedies than this is a constitutional violation. They're not even in compliance with the law. Right.
2: Right. There are consequences under the law.
0: Right. So... It really is sort of like the slave owning logic aspect of this is almost inescapable. Yeah. Right. Because it has to ignore everything else. And literally, this only makes sense if the interests the owners have here that's constitutionally protected is in the productivity of their workers. Yeah,
2: And just a really quick point that I think Breyer in dissent does a good job of describing the sort of far reaching impact of this decision the kinds of things that we have talked about already right can can a food inspector then enter a factory farm or a restaurant if this activity here in this case is is a per se taking mm-hmm. you know he points out those sort of examples but one thing i think that the dissent fails to do is point out sufficiently that slave-owning logic, right? What it means for migrant laborers, what it means for people who work in fields, on farms, picking fruits and vegetables day in and day out in the state of California.
0: Right. I think the dissent, it makes a lot of good points, but is overall pretty weak in a lot of ways. I think that's one. I think the other was, there was a point where I was rolling my eyes reading the dissent where Breyer sort of hinges everything on... Like, well, this doesn't fit with our precedent, and part of me is like, well, who who gives a shit? Yeah. Like, right? Like, who cares? Right? About the precedent? It's absurd. Like, forget about the precedent. It's not consistent with the text or history of the Fifth Amendment. But, but even beyond that, it's such like a empty thing, a weightless thing to hinge your argument on. Like, right. this is not something that anybody is going to give a shit about in ten years.
1: Sometimes something is, like, so nonsensical that saying, like, well, this doesn't comport with precedent is just underselling it by so much. Right. Right. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Just call it ridiculous.
1: Right. It's lawyer brain shit. Yeah. He's like, wow, this is this doesn't fit with our precedent.
2: Yeah. I can't find one citation to go with this.
0: What points do you get for that? Like, Roberts called the dissent thoughtful. Who gives a shit? It didn't change the outcome. That's right. It just made everything seem like a high minded debate.
1: Yeah. And also, this is the precedent now. Right. Like, right. this is the fucking yes. precedent now. Like, this is what we're stuck with moving forward. So you need to make an argument that future lawyers can actually hold on to. Right. right. Because right. if your argument is this doesn't comport with the precedent, that argument fades over time inherently. Right. You right. need something exactly. that you can actually sink your teeth into. And, and in 20 years, if this issue comes up again, you can make that argument. Right. Exactly. So, as the term wraps up, we've gotten the sort of usual influx of op-eds about how the court is showing signs of moderation and restraint. You know, the the legal media loves to do this well-actually thing where they sort of say, see, the worst case scenario didn't happen. You were all wrong about the court being a partisan instrument. And part of (laughs) that is just sleight of hand, right, where they they take something like the case that upheld the ACA, uh, Obamacare, this term and use it as a symbol of moderation, when in reality that case was absolutely batshit and the fact that several justices seemed to sign on to the argument for striking it down is the sign of an aggressively far-right fringe on the Mm -hmm. court that we should be very concerned about. But another part of the media cycle is that it almost always completely ignores the ways in which this court is actually extremely conservative and consistently conservative. Roberts himself, the supposed moderating influence on the court, is deeply conservative on questions of corporate interests. This is like, by just about any metric, the most anti-labor court since the 1930s. And that goes largely ignored in media coverage about the court. I think the real reason for that is that the political consensus in America is so neoliberal that questions of labor and corporate power have become steadily cordoned off from the mainstream political discourse which has become just increasingly focused near exclusively on cultural signifiers and the result is that these hack analysts can you know reassure you that things aren't going so bad while the court is at this very same time aggressively wiping away the power of american workers right that to me is like the most glaring defect in like legal journalism today that they can't look at things like this and see that it is part of a very consistent pattern of anti-worker jurisprudence from this court. That's right. I mean, I mean, I think the MO of this court in the past year has been to throw the left and liberals crumbs on certain civil rights issues while going full speed ahead, conservative nutjob shit on voting rights and corporate rights and these sort of areas that are a little less centered in the political discourse and when they are centered a little bit easier for them to claim or well it's like a legal issue right Mm -hmm. right and Mm -hmm. there's such a campaign of obfuscation going on from like the legal media who for some reason has some fucking vested interest in convincing you that this institution is going to take care of itself over time and it's just fucking not true and this case is a great example
2: yes yeah that's right
1: All right. So before we get out of here, we have a gift to give. Hmm. Some University of Chicago students had an auction and they auctioned off us roasting someone of their choosing. Yes. And so our friend at UChicago, Joseph, maybe Joe, maybe he goes by Joe. I don't know. (laughs) Joey. He was like, yeah, I want you to roast
0: Judge James Ho of the Fifth Circuit. (laughs) I thought we were going to get like somebody's friend, right? Like we would hop on his. Yeah, that's what I thought thought too. I thought he was going to be
1: like, "Here's a picture of my friend," and we were going to be like, "Looks like shit, dude." Instead, he was like, "This is a here's a, a sitting appellate judge, who's, uh, right, right. <laughs> in line for the Supreme Court who really sucks." I was like, "Great, now I have to read cases for this roast." Yeah, what, what, what the fuck? Like, I feel like we were given homework. Yeah, and I was really just looking to do some problematic insults towards uh, someone's close friend. <laughs>
0: Law professor would have been a nice choice too. Those are those are easy.
1: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> this is the most batshit federal judge, maybe. Yeah, one of the top five for sure. Oh, definitely. That helps. And what also helps is that we were. I was like, what are we gonna say about James Ho? And then he came out with a decision like last week that was like, we. <laughs> we follow the constitution not the woke
0: constitution <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay fucking dork that's when we start to get really excited
0: about this we was like all right fuck this guy yeah. yeah
2: yeah that's absolutely right
1: i just love the degree to which everyone's like the republican base has lost its mind it's all like qAnon shit and like the implication is that there's this this big segment of like the republican party that is actually still very like intellectual and then like all of their judges are like, Tucker Carlson says yeah. that immigration is out of control. Yeah.
0: And this isn't, Poe. is not one of the, the bullshit nominees, right? The ones with zero experience yeah. who were like 31. You know, this was a guy who worked in the White House, right? He worked in the DOJ, the civil rights yeah. division helping dismantle it under George Bush. Yep. And was considered like one of their like top ones, one of the ones that like centrists like to be like, no, he's really well qualified. And meanwhile, right. he's out here writing, he's written some of the dumbest shit I have read, <laughs> which is saying something. But like literally one of the worst arguments I have come across was his on campaign finance, when he said that if you think there's too much money in politics. That the solution oh, yeah. to that is to enact the preferences of rich people and cut the social safety net. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His solution is give conservatives what they want because then they won't need to spend money on politics. Right. That's yeah. the brightest legal minds in the conservative movement at work. Logic. Yeah. Yeah. Broken on the wheel of logic. <laughs> A very tight <laughs> circle of logic yes.
2: there.
1: <laughs> Unfortunately... Our producer told us that we can't do problematic roasts, Mm. which means I can't talk about the proportional size of his face to his head, which is (laughs) way off. It's not it's not normal.
2: Is it a a Charlie Kirk small face to head ratio or it's it's an unbelievably
1: small
0: face looks photoshopped
2: anyways. (laughs) So this guy after law school clerked for crazy bones himself Clarence Thomas. Like Michael said he has experience real experience in politics. He worked for Senator John Cornyn out of Texas and then later Judge Ho replaced uh, before he was a judge. Obviously he replaced Ted Cruz as Texas's solicitor general. Mm -hmm. back in the late aughts. And during that time, he led my state's shit-throwing exhibitions against the federal government uh, back during the Obama administration. So, yeah, he super sucks really deeply. Once he got up to the Fifth Circuit, he has been whining nonstop In a case that was about like a ban on interstate handgun sales, Judge Ho said, quote, the Second Amendment continues to be rated as a second class right. (laughs) Law abiding Americans should not be conflated with dangerous criminals. Constitutional rights must not give way to hoplophobia.
0: Hoplophobia.
2: Which is a morbid fear of guns. (laughs) Wow.
0: <laughs> do you think he knew that? Or do you think he like made a clerk like look that up? Look up the fear of guns. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he's like he's like waving his pistol in a clerk's face. <laughs>
2: right. Right. In another case, he's talking some shit that makes no sense at all. That 15-week ban on abortions in Mississippi, we know that case has been accepted next term by the Supreme Court. You know, the Fifth Circuit unanimously, a three-judge panel of Fifth Circuit judges unanimously struck that law down saying, look, this law clearly violates Supreme Court precedent on abortion, right? This violates Roe v. Wade. But Judge Ho writes separately to say, like, yeah, that's the right result if you're going based on precedent. But this precedent is garbage, Mm -hmm. right? He's complaining the whole time about Roe v. Wade and the Casey decisions upholding the right to reproductive autonomy. In that concurrence, he also used it as an opportunity to underscore and reiterate something that Clarence Thomas did in a 2019 case where he linked abortion health care providers to racist supporters of eugenics. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this guy is really, really out here going cuckoo Lulu on the law.
1: That's because if. If eugenics kicks off, people with tiny little faces are
0: going to be the first to go. And he knows that. <laughs> <laughs> <Peter>. Stupid. <laughs> so stupid. I, uh, I, did, I wanted to call attention to something he said way back in the 90s about affirmative action. This is a quote explaining why he's against affirmative action. It's along the same lines that you normally hear conservatives say. That's the really racist stuff about basically black people having trouble with academic rigor that's like beyond them. And so he says, if I five feet six and uncoordinated were told I could someday make the NBA, Mm -hmm. I'd try real hard. Then I'd spend the rest of my life cursing the system that lied to me rather than exert my energies on more fruitful and realistic pursuits.
2: What a piece of shit.
0: That's a pretty shit thing to say and a lot of racism embedded in it. Mm-hmm. But I do like imagining that instead of somebody telling him he could make the NBA when he was a teenager, like his mom or his guidance counselor sat him down and was like, Look, <laughs> you have the moral bankruptcy if you if you try really hard <laughs> one day. <laughs> You could shill for white people and
2: racists.
0: (laughs) You got that. Uh You got it, buddy. You work towards that and dedicate your life to it. Yeah. And he has. He has. Plus, Ben Simmons made
1: it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Judge James Ho, more like Judge James, no thank you. Got his ass. From us at five to four. Pull up,
2: bitch. You heard that?
1: More like James Schmo.
0: (laughs) Boom. (laughs) Boom.
1: Okay, we are getting him. We're we're on a roll. Yeah,
2: he can't come back from this. He's done.
1: Hearing now in my earpiece that he's gotten wind of this segment, uh-huh. and he is resigning. He is stepping down from the Fifth Circuit.
2: Yeah, yeah. You heard that, Judge Ho? Like three people at your alma mater, the University of Chicago, they don't like you, and we three people yeah. right here, we don't like you either. Yo. You dork. We
1: buried him.
0: <laughs> if we didn't quite have as much fun with this as you had hoped part of that is because he's just like the fucking boring person i looked far and wide for fun stories about him and there are
1: none yeah and the other part is artificial limitations put on (laughs) us by our producer (laughs) all right we are taking off for a couple of weeks Michael is going to Barbados, I believe. Right. I will, as always, just be grinding and hustling.
2: That's what you call what you do?
1: Yes. Yes, it is.
2: That's an interesting label.
1: Big talk from someone who needed an extra 10 minutes to prep for this episode when we started. (laughs)
2: Listen! Typing is hard.
1: (laughs) And then we will be back with an episode about legal journalism which we think is in some disrepair, but also we have proposals for fixing, like mm-hmm. giving me a column in the Washington Post and other stuff. We're gonna—I'm gonna think of others too. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at Five Four Pod. Join our Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Five Four Pod, all spelled out. Get our
0: incredible benefits. That's where I'll be posting hot pics of me on the beach. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> See you in three weeks.
2: Hot girl summertime. Bye.
0: (laughs) Five to Four is presented by Prologue Projects. This episode was produced by Rachel Ward with editorial support from Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons. Our production manager is Persia Verlin. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Ships NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations.